This super dope episode of Tuna on Toast is brought to you by Hammer Toyota out here in Southern California in Mission Hills. Johnny is the general sales manager. They, he, everybody there, they're the absolute best. I'm not saying go get a car this second, but when it's time to trade in your car, truck, SUV, uh, or you want to lease, buy a new car, truck, SUV, keep Hamer in mind. This is the company that supports Tuna on Toast. Just to refresh your course, maybe this is your first time checking out the podcast. Way back four or five months ago, when I left my other job on the radio every day, they said, Stryker, we've been working together eight years. It would not be authentic if we started working with another radio host. We're going to stick with you. And we have been amazing partners for eight years. And the partnership is even better since we started this podcast. The website, H-A-M-E-R, HamerToyota.com. Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called tuna on toast. I, I, I spit. I don't know what I'm doing. I love music and I love those that created it. Stryker's here. Tuna on toast. Yes. Tuna on toast. Yeah, welcome to a super dope episode of Tuna on Toast featuring the late Jerry Heller, music manager, music agent, businessman. You know him, of course, from Ruthless Records and Easy e NWA. Uh, you probably saw the movie Straight Outta Compton. There's some things you should know before we get to this interview. You need to know these years so you know, when, when, when Stryker, when did you sit down with this dude? When did the movie come out? When did Jerry Heller sadly pass away? This interview took place... And I'm 100% positive in 2011. The Straight Outta Compton movie came out in August 2015. And then Jerry died. Sadly, he had a heart attack while driving. He died in 2016. Again, interview 2011. The movie Straight Outta Compton, which did very well and was a good movie, came out in 2015. Jerry died in 2016. And there is no doubt in my mind. And I talk to Jerry about this all the time. He had so much stress from the movie and so much sadness from the movie. He just thought that the way, I mean, he was a villain. They made him out to be so much more of a villain than he even remotely was. And it hurt him so, so, so bad. I think that led to him dying and having that heart attack um, a year after the movie came out. And it's sad. Uh, Jerry Heller was extremely nice to me. And we struck up. I had a striker. How the hell do you know Jerry Heller? Because of MySpace. We met on MySpace. We talk about it briefly in the very beginning of this podcast. But what you will hear is uh, I ask questions about all everything NWA. Everything when it comes to Ruthless Records. Very specific questions about Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, Suge Knight. Easy E, percentages, how the record label worked. Also, uh, I was somewhat surprised to hear about Jerry Heller's history in the music business and so many successes that he had. I mean, it's, I mean, stuff about Pink Floyd and Elton John, all of it is here. Um, I can't believe that I even... Not that I have this interview, but that I was able to find it because in 2011, after we recorded it, unfortunately, no cameras were rolling. I just pressed record with some microphones. I did put it on the internet 
And over the last uh, many, many, many years, I was looking for it on the internet. It was nowhere to be found. I went to my storage locker, spent roughly two hours at the storage locker. I was at the bottom of the eighth box searching, and there it was on CD, Jerry Heller. So let's get to it. The gentleman that was extremely generous, and he was very complimentary towards me, but he also told me when I stunk. He watched me do a couple of red carpets, and there were two interviews in particular. He's like, that was not good. Uh, what the hell happened? What were you thinking? Uh, this is how you can do better. He had a good, he had a nice laugh. Again, he was very, very generous, and I like Jerry a lot. Here he is, the super dope manager, Jerry Heller. Test, test, test. Perfect. This is Jerry Heller. Yeah, that's just okay, Strikes. That sounds good. Jerry Heller. Wow, thank you. That's great, Striker. Wow, that makes me feel real good. People are probably listening saying, uh, how in the world did you get Jerry Heller to come into your godforsaken studio to do this? And I say we tell everybody how we met, which is... We met on Facebook. No, we met on MySpace, MySpace years ago. When, right. when, when MySpace was popular... How many years ago, Jer? Four well, or five? It had to be 2006 or seven because that's when my book came out. And I think you had read the book and had contacted, you thought me, but it was my wife who then told me about it and we became great friends. Right, exactly. And the book is called Ruthless and it tells the story of your life and it talks a lot about NWA and how you got involved and about the breakup and everything. And there's so many different things I want to touch on. But, um, and this this interview is just, I mean, some of these questions you've probably answered a lot. Maybe some you've answered not at all, but they're just things that I'm really curious about. So I'm just going to throw them at you, Jerry, and let's get rolling. Cool? Let's go. All right, let's, let's go. do it. All right, so Jerry, why did you become interested in music, and what were your first few jobs in the music business? Well, I came to California in 1960. I finished my undergraduate work at USC, and then I went to graduate school of business at USC, and then I went in the Army and got out. And people were offering me $425 a month, and I knew that that really wasn't what I wanted to do. Right. My cousin was in a Vegas lounge group. He got me a job with his agency. And uh, as usual, I was in the right place at the right time because in those days, all of my contemporaries, Marty Klein, Irving Azoff, David Geffen, Sandy Gallen, Tom Ross, they all started off as agents, and that's how I started. And what agency was that with? Well, the name of the agency was Coast Artists, but we used to really call it Whatever Happened To, and then you filled in the name of our clients. Got it. Whatever Happened To Billy Eckstein, our client, Frankie Lane, Mickey Rooney. Those were our clients. Who were some of the biggest bands you worked with as a super young guy? Well, when I was in my mid-20s, I uh, my first hit group was a group called the Standells, who had a song called Dirty Water, and then the Grassroots, and then uh, Creedence Clearwater. Wow. And then in, in 69, I brought Elton John here. Uh, right. Now, you brought Elton John to America. That's very true. What, I brought him to America. What are the circumstances for that? How did that go down? Well, um, a friend of mine in England had told me about him. I listened to his record because he had a record out there before he had one out here. Okay. And I, I loved what he was doing. I talked to him on the phone. He was terrified to come here because uh, Paul Buckmaster and Cynthia Buckmaster had 100 synthesized strings on that record. And he said, Jerry, how can I come here with a trio? And I said, you just come here. Everything will be fine. So we did a sort of an impromptu thing for Bob Hilburn at Peter Asher's house. Mm -hmm. 
uh, before he opened that famous date at the Troubadour. And, uh, of course, the, the first night at the Troubadour, he was a superstar. And then Bobby Hilburn, who always was at the forefront of, of, uh, of new artists, ran him on the cover of the Sunday calendar section of the L.A. Times. And it, that was it. It was history. And the guy, is it Robert Hilburn or something? Robert he Hilburn. He still writes for the Times, doesn't he? Well, he retired last year. He has a book okay. out now called Bre- uh, Cornflakes with John Lennon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's doing a series of books, and I went to a book signing of his not too long ago. But he's a fabulous guy. You couldn't even buy the guy lunch. He was so, you know, just straight arrow. And when he liked somebody, uh, people sat up and listened. So when you when you brought Elton here and that went down, were you still in your 20s when that happened? Yeah, I was uh, 28 years old then. And uh, I called Bill Graham from the Troubadour. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a tour out then with Derek and the Dominoes. And it wasn't doing fabulously well. It was doing okay. And it's funny, we were playing in Buffalo then. And the promoter in Buffalo, Harvey and Corky Productions, that was Harvey Weinstein, who founded Miramax. Right. So uh, I put Elton on with Derek and the Dominoes, and immediately the tour started to sell out. And then I booked him at the Fillmore East with my old protagonist, Bill Graham, who really, to me, is one of the the all-time greats in our business. And uh, I put him on with a keyboard player, Leon Russell, even though Elton was a keyboard player. I wanted to get him on as soon as possible. And... uh, you know, he just exploded overnight, and I, I then turned him over to my assistant, Howard Rose, and uh, moved on to my next group, Pink Floyd. And Okay, hold on. Now, about what year is this? That was, uh, well, Elton opened in August of 69 uh, at the Troubadour. Okay. And then I think I brought Pink Floyd here in December of 69, and nobody had heard of him here. Now, how did you hear of Pink Floyd? This is a... So- or this is the Jerry Heller that a lot of people listening to this podcast just know from all the NWA stuff. But the career you had before NWA is a career that most people would kill to have. Don't you think? Well. <laughs> Bringing Elton here, Pink Floyd, all the bands that you've managed and have worked with. And yeah, been it was a lot of fun. And uh, I just think that my whole life has been star-blessed. I've always been in the right place at the right time. I was in rock and roll at the beginning of rock and roll. I was in New Wave at the beginning of New Wave and punk at the beginning of punk. And then, of course, later on, uh, although it's a little longer story, I was in gangster rap. Right. Okay. So let's talk. Pink Floyd. Um, I saw Roger Waters about a year ago at Staples Center, and I was blown away by the performance. Um, what, stru- what did you like about Pink Floyd without seeing them? Because you probably just heard them before you saw them, I assume, right? Well, there was an incredible buzz going on in England about the Floyd. I knew the manager, Steve O'Rourke, and uh, I went over and saw the the biggest local promoters then were a company called Wolf and Rissmiller. Okay. And I went over and saw them, and remember now I'm coming off of uh, uh, Credence Clearwater. I'm coming off of Elton John. So really, you know, we got a bunch of young guys as promoters. We're not talking about Live Nation and AEG now. We're talking about young guys 
who had to make money on every concert or probably go out of business. I went over there and talked him into doing Pink Floyd, and I think the first date at Santa Monica Civic, wow. I think sold out in 17 minutes. Wow. And the promoters had never even heard of them. So the line to buy tickets, of course there's no internet to buy tickets at that time, so there's people are lining up probably at 3, 4 in the morning at Santa Monica Civic Center, right, and places you could buy tickets. You know, I can't remember exactly those details of it, but I know that the show sold out okay. just immediately, and then, of course, they sold out every date on the tour, and it, it was just fabulous. What was your goal, Jerry, in the middle of all this? Was it to own a label, just keep doing what you were doing? Was there ever a, a certain goal while you were doing such big things, or you were just happy doing what you were doing? Well, first of all, being an agent allowed me access into the business, mm -hmm. and I never really loved being an agent. You you were the low man on the totem pole, basically. You didn't make a lot of money. and uh, But I really was so involved with my artist that I was performing a managerial function for them, even though I was uh, only only getting paid as, as an agent. And I got a reputation for, for two things. I got a reputation for being there first, but I also had a reputation for being able to, to deal with very difficult artists. And uh, Who were some of those difficult artists? Well, I think probably the most <laughs> difficult I ever dealt with yeah. was Van Morrison. Oh, is that right? Mr. Oh, brown-eyed girl guy, right? Yeah, He's a he brown-eyed girl. He was impossible. And was it just that was his the way he was, or, or you guys had a problem with each other? What, what was it? You know what I found, Stryker, and this is really unusual. I found that with most of my artists, because... You know, a lot of people ask me these days, you know, who are you still friends with? Who are you not friends with? I found over the years that when my business relationship ended with an artist, that basically my personal relationship ended with that artist. Mm. And I found that really the only thing I had in common with Van Morrison was that we both liked what he did. And when our business relationship ended, then our personal relationship ended. Um, you know, there were some artists that that was certainly di different with. Marvin Gaye was one. Um, certainly Easy e was my prime example. I mean, you know, what an unlikely duo we were. Right. I was tall. He was short. I was educated. He dropped out of high school. I was old. I was already almost middle-aged. He was young. He was black. I was white. I was from the Midwest. He was from Compton. Everything about us was so diametrically opposed, and yet we managed to build this empire together. All right, let's fast forward to that now, because this is such a cool story, and Jerry has a book out, which has been out for quite a few years now, which is called Ruthless, and it's really an unbelievable book, and what we're going to talk about a lot of the things that are in there, but... Um, all right, you and Eazy-E, the very first time you met, why did that meeting, and how did that meeting take place? Well, let's go back just a little further than that. All right. Uh, ironically, the music business was in a very, very bad position there because what I think was the second greatest album of the second half of the 20th century, Sgt. Pepper, set the bar so impossibly high for all other rock and rollers that the focus of the music business then became how they how are the labels going to recoup and how are they going to make money when they're spending this much money on records so you know it's just so ironic that this incredible album 
really was the start of the first downfall of, of rock and roll. So I was going, I had just gone through a bad divorce. A friend of mine named Maury Alexander called me and said, you got to check out what's happening at this little pressing plant over in old Hollywood called McCullough. So it took me two or three months to get over there because I was getting drunk every day, you know, after my divorce, sleeping on my mother's couch in Encino. And uh, I finally got over there and pressing there for $1,000 where you got 500 records, all the artwork. And this guy at McCullough, Don McMillan, would send the record to other guys that did what he did in other sections of the country. So pressing there were uh, Jay King and the Timex Social Club, Bobby Jimmy and the Critters, J.J. Fad, mm. the L.A. Dream Team, Rodney Owen, Joe Cooley, the Egyptian Lover, a little group called the World Class Wrecking Crew, and their sister or brother group, uh, CIA. Uh, these, were all, these groups, uh, I forgot about Ice-T and MC Hammer, these groups were all pressing over at McCullough. Now, what do you mean pressing? They were making the records there? Is that it was, what they were it doing? was an actual vinyl pressing plant. Okay, and this was in Hollywood? It was in Hollywood We're on right about Santa Monica and Vine. Santa Monica and Vine, I know. In right? old, yeah, old yeah. Hollywood. Right. And um, I know that there was a, a bar <laughs> not too far from there called the, uh, the Academy where everybody dressed like policemen. I walked in there a couple of times. That was sort of... Yeah, that was a, an epiphany. All right, so they're printing, pressing all, all the vinyl there from J.J. Fad and Ice-T, MC Hammer, World Class Wrecking Crew. All right, and then what now? Okay, so I meet this guy, Rudy Pardee, who happened to be from Cleveland, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And uh, he played me uh, Rockberry Jam and uh, Dream Team in the house. He also was involved with J.J. Fad, and he played me Supersonic, which was the original version version of Supersonic right. when there were five girls in the group from Rialto or San Bernardino, somewhere out there. And uh, I said, you know, I like this. It's musical because I was always a melody kind of person. It was musical. I liked it. Uh, I never had liked the Hollis Queens kind of rap because it wasn't musical. It wasn't it was lyrical, but it wasn't musical, and it was hard for me to relate because I was a, a rock and roller at heart. So, uh, you know, I listened to it. I made a deal with Rudy Pardee to represent J.J. Uh, uh, Fad and really? the L.A. Dream okay. Team. Right. And we the were, team we were on our way. House. Yeah, that was a good yeah. record. That was a good record. Really good record. And the S is for super, the U is for unique, the P is for perfection, and you know that we are freaks. The E right. is for erotic, and the R is for rap. So tell those... Funky people just stay the hell back. Yeah, and but the first version of it that yeah. that the Arabian Prince produced right. was F is for Fatima. You know, it was the names of the girls. There was only two of the original or three, two of the original J.J. Fad uh, girls were in that group, and they, they changed. And then, of course, when Easy and I bought that record from Rudy Pardee later on, we had Dr. Dre go back in and uh, okay, all and, right, and remix. So it. the first, I guess, uh, hip hop group you ever were associated with was JJ Fad. JJ Fad, and actually, that was our first hit at Ruthless Records. Who did you buy the record from, or the rights from? From Rudy Pardee, who was the lead in uh, the LA Dream Team. Okay, got it. And is it was it a super amount of money to to get that, or was it easy to get? Well, it was a super amount of money compared to what it cost. I think he cut it for two hundred dollars. <laughs> Remember, we cut straight out of Compton for twelve thousand, and Ooh. Easy does it for eight thousand. Okay, which is really what got me back into the basic 
intrinsic economic integrity of the music business. That's the way the music business is supposed to be. When you sell 100,000 records, you're supposed to make money. It's not supposed to be like uh, what became an Interscope, where the average artist had to sell 1.2 million units just to recoup. So I liked it. The actual recording of the records in people's garages, the tape actually cost more than it cost to record the record. So if you didn't like the record, you just recorded over it. How did somebody like Arabian Prince know what he was doing at that time? Did he have a lot of experience in music? Because he's a guy that I've heard of since the mid-80s, and he's a guy I've never met, but he seems to be, or he was in the right place at the right time doing the right things, Jerry. Good guy. Remember now, they're cutting records on equipment that they bought at Toys R Us. Okay. You know, they would pay $200 for a cast. You'll go to their mother's garage. Yeah. They would record it, and then they would go up to, and this is no reflection on anybody, they went up to the greatest radio station in America, little 5,000-watt station on the top of Alvarado Street called K-Day, and Julio G and Tony G and Greg Mack and the, the Mix Masters and the Mac Attack. That was the only radio station in America that played our kind of music. All right, so let's now... Why? Here's what's something that's going through my mind, Jerry. You had worked with all these bands that you named before, and these were rock and roll bands. These were mostly white bands. These were bands that everyone knew why did somebody come to you to say come to this pressing plant at santa monica in vine and see what they're doing there why did they come to you for that you know i don't i'd like to be humble but i'm not a humble person i have a huge <laughs> ego <laughs> i was already a big star so it seems sort of a natural kind of thing that once i got interested mm -hmm. you know that they would want to deal with me and not their homies that you know they had been dealing with before okay i had all the connections with the major labels and i, I knew how to do it because i had been there before strikers so that was a natural thing the thing that amazed me was why did easy e eric wright you know you know i i know that he had heard about me and alonzo williams who really was one of the important early forces in in the music business he was you know, he was uh, in the uh, world-class wrecking crew, which I always called the Temptations of Rap. And he, uh, CIA recorded for him. And then, of course, Michelle did was a background singer who did the vocals on Turn Out the Lights. So he was there, and he had a club called Eve After Dark in Compton. And I used to go down there, and, of, of course, I was the only white person probably that ever went there. And I sat at the bar, and I'd sit there and drink vodka, and... Uh, he kept telling me about this guy that wanted to meet me, Eric Wright, Eric Wright, Eric Wright. And I said, give me a break already with Eric Wright. I don't care about Eric Wright. I'm busy. And he said, uh, finally said to me, you know, man, this guy wants to meet you really badly. He offered me $750 to meet you, wow. and I could use the money. So I said, okay, man. March 3rd, which was a Tuesday or a Thursday of 1987, I was going to be in McCullough. I said, tell him to show up, and I'll be there. And uh, I was there, and he pulled up in a Suzuki Samurai with MC Ren, and he got out, and he was he was cool, man. This this dude was clean, and uh, you know he was a little dude, and he walked out, and you know the music business, you know what a bullshit business it is, Striker. Yep. I got this guy, and I got this girl, and I got this group, and this is my song, and this is my boy, and this. And that. I said, 
uh, after he leaned down, pulled a, a roll of money out of his sock, <laughs> and paid Alonzo the seven fifty, I said, "You got something you want me to hear?" He didn't say anything. He just handed me a cassette, and I so put he it, wasn't bullshitting like most people do. He just handed you and didn't, handed you the tape and didn't say anything. So what he was really saying by not saying anything mm-hmm. is, "Hey man, I'll let my music do the talking." So I played "Boys in the Hood." And the moment I heard it, yeah. I said, this is the most important music that I've heard since the Rolling Stones. I said, this is a combination of Gil Scott Heron, the Rolling Stones, and the Black Panthers. In a way, it's being told that even me, a white, middle-class Jewish guy from Shaker Heights, Ohio, can relate to it and understand it. And if I can do that, I said... This is going to be the most important album of my generation. Wow. So, I mean, it just freaked me out. He played me a couple of more cuts. And the next day I called a meeting of all my clients at a mob restaurant over on Coenga called Martoni's in the back room. Yep. And I said, listen, guys, you know, I'm going in business with this guy, Eric Wright, and uh, this is what I'm going to do. And if you sign with us, then I can represent you. If not, you know, I'm going to rec- recommend some good managers to all of you guys. And, uh, you know, this is the way it's got to be. So at that point, being older was a real asset because I was a child of the 60s, Stryker. Mm-hmm. I had gone through and, and lived through the Black Panthers I lived through Richard Nixon, a president that was a crook, you know, that had to to resign. I lived through the war in Vietnam. I lived through the Fillmore's, and I lived through all of those things. So for me, when I heard this music, I said, wow, my problem here isn't going to be whether the music is any good or not. My problem is going to be a marketing problem. The music is the greatest music I've heard in a long, long time. Most people, though, Jerry, sorry to interrupt, want to make money. And if you can market, you can make money. So was that a concern? Like, I'm not going to be able to market, so I'm not going to make money. The money I'm investing is just going to be lost. It may be the greatest uh, music to me, but I don't know if I can even get the message out. Well, that never even crossed my mind. It didn't? Okay. No, because there's an old saying in the music business that goes back to the original vinyl. If it's in the grooves and... Man, this music was in the grooves. And if it's in the grooves, sooner or later, no matter how long it takes, I saw The Doors play the Whiskey A Go-Go for nine straight months before any radio station would play Break On Through. So sooner or later, the kids find the music. And I knew that that would happen. But my problem was, you know, this guy, Eric Wright, He doesn't need me to sell records out of the trunk of his car at the swap meets. He can do that by himself. I said, he needs me to get him what we used to call white middle-class America, Kansas, Nebraska, Minnesota, places like that, where normally this kind of record would never be a a force. So what I did, Stryker, was this. I said, you know, who are the hippest guys in America today? And I thought... The hippest guys were the surfers and skateboarders in Huntington Beach. And I went down there and listened to their boomboxes, and you know who they're playing? Who? They were playing Metallica 
appetite for destruction, mm-hmm. suicidal tendencies. And I said, well, wait a second now. Anybody that buys appetite for destruction is a customer for straight out of Compton. So, you know, if you look at any interview or any video that they did between 87 and 91, I'm talking about guns or Metallica, you'll see them wearing Compton hats or straight out of Compton t-shirts. And at the time, Jer, I mean, I was such a giant NWA Easy e fan, but I also like Guns N' Roses. So I was, I was, I'm not hip and I'm not cool now, nor was I then, but I was the guy that liked both of those bands. You were, all, all you of those were my target audience. I lived right here on the west side of Los Angeles and um, went to an LAUSD school. And I remember first hearing um, Boys in the Hood, and I'm not, it was like an old, old cassette. It's one where it said like eight ball on it or something. There was a guy with it. I think we're in a clock on the cover, actually. NWA and the Posse was the name of it. Yeah. That was a, a compilation that we put together, and that was the first gold compilation ever. Really? Uh huh. We put wow. it out through SEMA, mm-hmm. which was the independent distribution arm of Capital, and we put it out through Priority Records. And Brian Turner and Mark Cerami, who were, I think, two of the best record guys of, of my era, uh, they had just come off a huge hit, believe it or not, with the California Raisins. And uh, they had money. They sold several million copies of that. I heard it through the grapevine. (laughs) And uh, I was able to talk them into getting involved with NWA. Before we get to how they got and why and how you convinced them to get involved with NWA, I want to know how it went that you and Easy finalized your business relationship with Ruthless Records. Take me through that, if you would. Well, Easy said to me, you know, I want to be with you. Uh, we're going to be 50-50 partners. So I said, really, that isn't the way that I see it. I see it differently. I want the company to be totally black-owned mm-hmm. so that your idol, Barry Gordy, that you can be mentioned in the same breath as, as Barry Gordy, who I consider one of the great record men of all time. And I said, the only thing that I ask is that... You know, we go back to Little Richard and Bo Diddley and and guys like that who the mob ripped off. They took their publishing, and uh, those guys wound up making no money. I said, I never want them to say that about Ruthless. And they really shouldn't have, but I found out something about about the music business, that when somebody wants to get out of a contract, that's what they say, hmm. that you stole from them. All right, so you and Easy make a deal. Is it is it is it fifty fifty or it's not fifty fifty? It's not fifty fifty. It's not fifty fifty. It was something that he and I agreed upon, and yep. both of us were very happy with. First order of business for Ruthless Records. You and Easy are together. Is what? Well, our first order of business was for me to try and secure some major distribution. Okay, here we go to Priority Records now, for the label. Right? Well, I okay, went to right. a few places before that. Okay. Uh, I had had tremendous tremendous success with a guy named Joe Smith, who is one of the greats of our business. He was one. Of, he was a disc jockey in Boston. He came out here and founded Reprise mm. with Frank Sinatra and Mo Austin. He was Mo Austin's partner, and then became the chairman of the board of of Capitol Records. So I went to see him at Capitol, and how are we about dirty words on this? Uh, We're okay. Yeah. So. 
I sat down with him and I put on a record that starts off, what the fuck is up, who the fuck is he, coming on the mic is easy motherfucking E. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Jerry, he said, you really got to stop getting high, man. He said, what are you telling me here? Are you telling me? He says, I know no one will ever play this. I can't believe that anyone would listen to it. And he says, I personally hate it. And I said, Joe, I remember when radio stations wouldn't play Let's Spend the Night Together by the Rolling Stones, and now Mick Jagger is Frank Sinatra. I said, this is the music of the future. And you better get on this, this bandwagon, Joe, because this is where it's going. And what did Joe do? He said, I love the name Ruthless. I'll give you $2 million for it right now. I'll write your check right now for it. And he just wanted Ruthless. Just the name. Okay, yeah. He said, but I'll retire before I ever get involved with a record like this. And um, that's the way. So you took the $2 million from from Joe? No. Oh, no, you said no. no. You said not. no, okay. Of course, right, right, right. Not. Okay. And uh, we we tried a few more things, and then, you know, I made the deal with, with Brian Turner and Mark Cerami, and it was a very lucrative deal for everybody, and everybody was real happy with it for... Uh, a period of time until Ice Cube decided he wanted to be a solo artist and leave the group. All right, so we're going to get to Ice Cube leaving. Do you remember the year exactly that Straight Outta Compton came out? Well, I've, I've seen or so. I've seen a hundred different things. It was either eighty-eight or eighty-nine. Okay, and Easy Does It came out shortly thereafter, right? Within thirty days. Within thirty days of yeah, each other, be, they came because out because they were both done, and it was just a matter of us just doing that. Now, if I remember right. We put it out, uh, I think, like in December. And, you know, there's an old axiom in the music business that you never put out a record after October. Okay. Because then you got, uh, you got Thanksgiving, you got Christmas, you got New Year's. And basically the business used to shut down as far as radio were concerned. But we weren't getting any airplay anyhow and had no chance of ever getting any airplay. So we just put it out. Okay, so the record is out there, both Strata Compton and Easy Does It. And at what point was there an event or something that happened where you're like, you know what? We have something here, not just in my mind, but I can see it out there in the world that it's happening. Well, there was a lot of things that happened, and none of them are really explainable. Hmm. The mall was becoming the social center of urban America. All of a sudden, everybody had a cell phone, (laughs) and they had them in their cars, and you could hear what they were playing on the radio. And communication became so much so much better. But we would take a, a cut up to Greg Mack or Julio G or Tony mm-hmm. G. and At K-Day? At K-Day. They would listen to it. Now, understand that K-Day was a, was a, a strange station. Uh, the signal was so bad that if you drove to the valley, you could be listening to Straight Outta Compton. And then as soon as you got through the Coenga Pass... You would hear, I, I, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. You know? <laughs> and we should point out it was on AM. Right, it was 1580 AM, Fif- right at the end of the dial. Right, right. So the Country Western Station <laughs> would, would, would play right on top of it. So they would say, hey, this is, uh, this is a little rough, and you got to do this or that, or we'd go back to Easy's mother's garage, and they would reverse it, or Dre would, uh, would uh, just bleep something out, and we would bring it back, and they would play it, and the next day... We would get orders for forty to 50,000 mm. units from Atlanta and Texas and the different one, one-stop one places all over the country. And believe me, I could never 
figure it out. NWA is exploding. Easy E is exploding. Ice Cube is a rock star. Dre is a rock star. Yella, um, uh, Ren and Easy. They, they are NWA. Everybody knows every member of the band. And sometimes in rock and roll, you don't know who the drummer is. You don't know who that guy is. But five guys in the in NWA, everybody knew who they were. How do you explain that? Easy used to always say, yeah, that he was the conceptualizer. Dre was the musicalizer. Mm-hmm. Ice Cube was the verbalizer. And Jerry was the financializer. <laughs> so the big stars in the group were Dre and Easy. And Easy always said that I was the most second most famous person in rap. He wanted to do a record with me. You're the super dope manager, Jerry Heller. Yeah, I sure was. Yeah. That was uh, right off the last cut of Straight Outta Compton. Another funny thing was when I, you know, when I first heard, when he said to me, NWA, I said, what does that mean? No whites allowed? And he started to laugh because I hadn't heard Straight Outta Compton yet. Of course, once I heard Straight Outta Compton, crazy motherfucker named Ice Cube in a band called With Attitudes, you know, then I knew what it, what right, it meant. Right. But uh, it was an incredible trip. Three or four months into Straight Outta Compton, Foreign L Magazine, E-L-L-E, which is uh, like Vogue is overseas, had a 12-page uh, spread in the center of L Magazine called Gangster Sheep, Chic. Mm-hmm. Featuring NWA. I mean, it was just unbelievable. When it started to happen, it happened so quickly. And a guy named Jonathan Gold, who now is the food critic for the L.A. Times, did a great article in the L.A. Weekly with, uh, I think, the greatest artwork that I've ever seen on NWA. And uh, they actually sat there with, with shotguns on their laps, and he was shaking when he did the interview because he thought that they were really serious about it. And uh, once it started to happen, yeah. I mean, it exploded. A guy named Sam Ginsburg, who was at Abbey Road, the, the one stop here in, uh, in California, he called up and he took 225,000 copies of Easy Does It and Straight Outta Compton. And then two weeks later, he had sold them all and he took another 250,000 copies and wrote checks for them. So we were in business. But what people really don't, they forget that our first chart record and our first hit record Mm -hmm. was Supersonic by J.J. Fad. And uh, I think that Supersonic sold well over a million 12 inches. And then when I made a deal with Jerry Greenberg at Atco Atlantic to put out Supersonic, I said, come on, Jerry, we can't uh, ride this record anymore. It's, it's, it's over. And he said, that's the only way I'll make the deal is if you let me re-release it. And he re-released it, and it, it sold many, many more copies. And then, of course, after that, uh, Criss Cross had Jump, which I think right. was supersonic. And then, of course, Fergalicious. I mean, you, between those two records, you're probably talking about another 10 or 15 million copies. Wow. And, uh, and then I forced Michelet down Jerry Greenberg's throat, and uh, we put out her record. No more questions, no more lies. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was the first R&B record with hip-hop beats, which was produced by Dr. Dre. Wow. In fact, Dr. Dre, you know, when you talk, want to talk about stars, I mean, he did the music for every record that ever came out on Ruthless. How many records, you may not know the exact answer, so approximately how many records did you guys put out total? Well, we put out uh, 
straight out of Compton, and then Easy Does It, and a couple of J.J. Fad records. Then we put out Ethel for Zagan. We put out 100 Miles and Running. We put out Nobody Does It Better by the DOC. Which is one of the, I think, one of the greatest records of any format of all time. I think he's probably the greatest pure rapper that ever lived. Mm -hmm. Then we put out, uh, we had No More Lies by Michelet. And then uh, we had finished The Chronic, which was probably in 92 or 93. Dr. Dre's The Chronic? Yeah. And easy, we were fighting with Dre because of uh, Mr. Evil, Suge Knight. And uh, Easy carried around one of the masters in his trunk, and the other half was carried, Dre carried around in his trunk. So when Jimmy Iovine called me and told me, he says, Listen, Jerry, I'll never buy a lawsuit with you, but I don't think that Dr. Dre is ever going to record for Ruthless again. And I felt that that was true. I talked to Easy about it, so we made a deal with Jimmy Iovine for The Chronic. And I'll never forget, Jimmy said, he took me out in the hall and he said, geez, Jerry, I'm paying so much money for this record. You guys have a continuing interest in in anything he does as long as he's with us. Is this record any good? (laughs) And I said, I said, I think you'll be happy with it, Jimmy. Wow. Interscope, Jimmy Iovine paid you guys for the Dre stuff. and, And so you got that money, plus you still got money for the copies he sold on that, right? Well, we, we shared in Dre as a producer, Dre as an artist, mm. and, and Dre as a, uh, whatever he did at Interscope. Uh, after Easy died, I don't know uh, what Ruthless did. You know, I really had no contact with him after that. So Easy died. There was nothing left for me. I left. And uh, so I, I don't know what really happened to all those incredible deals that I had made. Let's rewind a little bit. Ice Cube leaving NWA. According to you, why and how did that come about? Well, everybody has a different version of that story. You know, Ice Cube has this version about how we weren't paying him. Uh, That, of course, is is ridiculous. But one thing he did say was true. He said, uh, I've made 32,000. I just am picking a number. Mm -hmm. And Jerry made 160,000, you know, on the tour. But you gotta, you have to look at that. That was probably true at that time. But if you look at how much money he's made now off of that album, it's probably millions and millions of dollars. And of course, once I stopped being his manager, uh, my uh, income stream stopped at that point. But we have to look at Ruthless the way it was structured. Easy owned the company. So he got a certain percentage off the top. He owned the company. Uh, the rest of the royalties were split five ways between the five members of the group, and then I got my percentage from each of the members. So Dr. Dre uh, did the music for every record, that, for every song that ever came out on Ruthless. Wow. I mean, he did the beats. Mm-hmm. So you have one guy uh, getting 50% of the, of the mechanicals. And that's Dre. And that's Andre Romel Young, Dr. Dre. Now, if you look at, even though Easy called Cube the verbalizer, if you look at any of the songs, like Dope Man or Boys in the Hood, you'll see that there's a number of writers. There were no songs that he wrote by himself. So the, the writer's portion, and for those of your sophisticated listeners who understand Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe, Music and lyrics. I mean, you're talking about 50-50. That's the way it's split up. So Dre got 50%. The rest was split between the other writers. 
Uh, Easy got 25% off the top, or Ruthless did. He was the sole owner of of Ruthless. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it wasn't possible for Cube to make as much as Easy. It wasn't possible. Or Dre. Who was telling Ice Cube that you're not getting a fair deal? You need to do something about this. Was it himself, or was there an outside source telling him? Well, I think that the the publicist for um, Priority, which was Pat Charbonnet, who was a fabulous one of the best publicists I've ever dealt with. Mm-hmm. And she uh, she was there along with Hannah Bolte and, and Phyllis Pollock. We had one of the great publicity teams of all time. I think that they were blowing that smoke up his ass. Plus, Brian Turner was, was telling him that you should be a solo artist. And the thing was that the next record we would have put out would have been an Ice Cube solo record. On Ruthless Records. On Ruthless. Okay. But, you know, it turned out well for him. And uh, Easy went on and discovered Bone Thugs and Harmony, mm. and we had a couple more years with Dr. Dre. So, you know, that's the way those things happen. Do you have any hard feelings towards Ice Cube? He said some terrible things about you in songs. <laughs> Do I have any hard feelings toward Ice Cube? Well, let's see. Now he wrote a song called <laughs> No Vaseline. Yep. And in this song. And I, the original lyrics were a little different than the uh, uh, the later lyrics because Brian Turner wouldn't put it out the way it was. But it ended up saying he ended up saying, "How can you be a for life crew with a white Jew telling you what to do?" And it originally said with a white Jew like Jerry Heller telling you what to do, and something something something, and we're going to shoot that Jew in the temple, right? With temple being a double entendre. So, how did I feel about that? I thought it was vitriolic, evil, and um, probably one of the the most horrible things that anyone could have written. I don't think that he was anti-Semitic. I think that he probably thought that it would sell some records. He was hanging out with the Public Enemy guys at that time, and I'm sure that they had some influence on him. At that time, just like he wrote Black Korea, I don't think that he was uh, a racist. I just thought that he wrote a a song, and, uh, you know, that's what he did. Could I ever forgive him for it? Absolutely not. Uh, I know that he has nothing but white Jewish people around him now, Mm -hmm. and— but that's uh, When you see him making movies, uh, Are We There Yet?, and the things he's doing, do you ever— do you say, oh, he's doing great career moves, or do you say that's who he was from the beginning? What are your thoughts on that? I think that Ice Cube has a great feeling for who Ice Cube is. Remember that when he was a member of NWA, he went to, he's writing lyrics for Dope Man going to Taft High School in, uh, in the Valley. In the Valley. So I think that he has a great feeling for who and what he is. I don't think that he was the conceptualizer that that Easy was. I think that he's a very smart young guy who's been enormously successful. I have no jealousy for his success. Uh, this latest television show he did, I thought was, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't watch it. And, uh, you know, I thought it was like, you know, the poor version of the Jeffersons or something. And to hear him say, yeah, it's funny, you know, in those ads. 
Okay. Right. You know, if that's what you think is funny. The funny thing is I never saw him again, ever. That's my next question. L.A., big city, but it's really a small city. I mean, you can go anywhere and run into anybody. Have you seen him once since never the 80s? Never once. We both go to Laker games. We both go to Dodger games. He's a sports fan. I'm a sports fan. I have never, ever seen him once from the day that he left Ruthless Records. Did you prepare yourself? Have you ever prepared yourself if you ran into him at a Laker game and all of a sudden you're face-to-face with the guy or not? Oh, uh, you know, just like I I never saw Suge Knight until December, uh, August of 2007. I was walking out of Monty's with a friend of mine, Uwe, who initiated Ghetto Metal and the Stallionaires from, right. uh, from VH1. And there he was. And uh, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and it was crowded. Neither of us could go either way. And he stuck out his hand, and I stuck out my hand. and uh, Then you moved on. And that was it. So Ice Cube left. You have not seen him since. Afil Verzagin Verza- came out without Ice Cube, right, in a debut number one? Is that yeah. what happened next? Yeah, that was, the, uh, that was the first week of SoundScan. What was that? June of... I don't even remember what year. We hit the, it was it was the nineties, wasn't it? It debuted at, at number one and it it kicked uh, Paul Abdul was number <laughs> one the week before. And here you have Ethel for saying. So uh but uh yeah, that was the start of start of SoundScan and it, it really revolutionized rap music because rap records just didn't make the charts before then. All right, so let's talk about Dre's departing of NWA now. The first time you heard that Dre was not feeling good and he wanted to leave the band and he was ups- upset with things, what was the situation, Jer? Well, you know, now now that's something different, okay? Now we're talking about Ruthless's most valuable asset. We're not talking about some young kid that wrote a few lyrics. Now we're talking about Dr. Dre. Because every song Ruthless had done, his hands were on. Right. I yeah. mean, this guy, let's just look at his career. World-class wrecking crew with juice and surgery. Uh, turn out the lights. We're talking about straight out of Compton. Uh, for life. Uh, 100 miles and running. Easy does it. Uh, we're talking about f- nobody does it. No one does it better. No more lies. I mean, we're talking about. And then he goes on to do the chronic one and two. He goes on to do uh, 50 Cent, Eminem, The Game. I mean, this guy. Has been at the very top of his game since 1986. Wow. He is the most important single entity of the entire rap era. And I made two mistakes. Number one, I never thought anybody would, could come between Dre and Easy. They were best friends. You know, their whole they they were just great friends. And I thought, you know, I, I made a, a real tactical error there because that's that was my mistake. What I tried to do was make his own label for him with easy just commissioning that label and me being a part of it on just a commission basis with with Dre owning 80 percent he was going to call it death row records Mm. def and that name was owned by the unknown dj and i had made a deal with irving azoff to put to give him a label with some astronomical amount of front money 20 million dollars or something but unfortunately at that at that particular time, uh, Warner Brothers was going through their problems with Cop Killer, C. Dolores Tucker. They were going through this, this bad time. They were in, as they said, the cable franchise business. And Mo Austin refused to fund uh, Defro Records, so 
there was Dre with Suge Knight whispering in his ear, and uh, we wound up having to make a deal with Jimmy Iovine. Mm-hmm. You know, things could have been very different. So Easy and Dre are best of friends. You didn't think anything would come between them. Where and how did Suge Knight get involved in all this? Well, I think that the DOC, Suge was a, was a bodyguard at Ruthless Ooh, and okay. a friend of the DOCs. And uh, I think that, you know, that they just uh, blew smoke up uh, Dre's, Dre's butt. And also Dre always felt that Easy had promised him he could be a, an owner of, of of uh, ruthless. Mm-hmm. Now I have to tell you honestly that if it were me, I would have made him a partner. But in all the years that I was there, from '87 to uh, March 26th of '95, when Eric passed away, uh, I never heard Eric mention that Dre was was supposed to be a partner, and I never heard Dre mention it. So I really don't know, you know. Whether that was something just between Easy and Dre that festered, and then uh, you know outside people came along and and were able to drive a wedge between Easy and Dre, I I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I had never heard either of them ever mention the fact that Dre was supposed to be a partner in Ruthless. Have you run into Dr. Dre over the years? I see him all the time. You and know? how is that relationship? Is there one? Is it friendly? Do you have any ill ill feelings towards him at all? I have no ill feelings toward Dre. You know, uh, Dre and e, Dre and and uh, Cube, I mean, may have said bad things about Easy and I, mm-hmm. but they knew us. They earned that right to say that if that's what what they felt, they earned that right. Uh, there are people that have written songs about me because I think of the twenty biggest diss records of all time. Six were about me. <laughs> uh, I never met Nelly in my life. I didn't meet Game until way after. Uh, Tim Dog. I mean, people wrote songs about me that really I didn't know them, and they have no right to say anything about Easy and I because they didn't really know us. Uh, Dre and Cube, no matter what they said or how despicable I thought it was, they earned that right. They said it, and uh, uh, like I say, they earned that right. So there's no hard feelings with me. And when I see Dre, uh, which, who I haven't seen in the last couple of years. I see his mom all the time because she lives two streets away from me in the same complex that I live in in Calabasas. And she always gives me a hug. I see Shamika's sister who had twins on uh, MLK Day. And we always hug and kiss and everything. And, you know, uh, Vern and I talk about uh, about Andre and and I see him, I'll see him at the gas station, I'll see him here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see his mom at the market all the time. But I'll, I'll run into him once in a while and we're as friendly as could. Hi, how you doing? And, you know, there's no hard feelings toward toward he and I. There may be hard feelings with him toward me because uh, when he was leaving, he said to me and to Doug Young, which I think was in uh, maybe December of 91 or 92, I, I can't remember exactly, He said to me, you know something, man, you picked the wrong And you know something? I said, you know, Andre, I go home from the dance with who I came with, and I came with Eric, and that's who I go home with. So, you know, that's the way it was with me. And, you know, sure, it hurt me to see him go in another direction after, you know, I had been so responsible for for building his career as Eric was. But uh, that's the way it went, and my loyalties were with 
Eric Wright. All right, we only have a few more minutes, and then we're going to be done. So the first the first thing is we're talking about a lot of negativity, Dre leaving, Ice Cube leaving. What are some of your best memories of NWA? Well, I mean, I think the things, the trend-setting things that they did were were just incredible. This is without airplay. I mean, they're selling billions of dollars. The original member, five members of NWA, have done billions of dollars worth of business. Does MC Ren still make money today? Are we allowed to talk about that? I don't know. I, do- I have no way of knowing. Oh, you have no way of knowing? Okay. So, uh, I mean, here's a group... How would this make you feel? The city of Compton wasn't on the map of the city of Los Angeles before NWA. Mm. They made NWA, they made Compton bigger than Nashville. It was Los Angeles, New York, Compton, and Nashville. Uh, I mean, they were invited to the White House. They they had number one records. I mean, the things they that they the do. <laughs> they were on the FBI's list. They were on the FBI on the FBI's list. They were on the Skinheads uh, death list. I mean, the things that they did were so incredible, and they gave inner-city youths uh, a chance to do something beside being a professional athlete or a drug dealer. I mean, they certainly gave them an alternative to that. Um, They did such incredible things uh, for themselves. Uh, It was the first time that white middle-class America was able to relate to the problems of our inner cities uh, since Bobby Kennedy. I mean, what an important, important group. Mm -hmm. Chris Rock called them the Black Beatles in Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, Terry McDermott in the uh, uh, magazine section of the LA Times uh, called Straight Outta Compton the most important record of the second half of the 20th century. Mm which includes a lot of Beatles records, a lot of Jimi Hendrix, a lot of Marvin Gaye. You're talking about a lot of important, important records. And here in the L.A. Times, they called it the most important record of the second half of the 20th century. And I'll tell you something else which you, you brought to mind for me is that there isn't one person in your age bracket that I've ever talked to that can't tell me exactly where they were the first time they heard Straight Outta Compton. Right. I was in high school. I was at my school. Someone was playing it. Everyone can say that. Every person I've ever met. Wow. All right, Jerry, let's talk about Easy E, and then we're going to wrap it up. Easy E died March of 1995. I also want to talk about my new group a little. Oh, yeah. Oh, we got to do that, too. Okay, okay so let's, let's do a little Easy, then talk about the group you're working with now because you're still working. Right. Easy e was such an exciting, intriguing guy. As you said at the top of the show 55 minutes ago, he was short, you were tall, you're white, he's black, you're Jewish, he wasn't. You come from, he's, you're from the Midwest, he's from Compton. Why were, was he as close as I thought you were? Because when I would see you guys, I'm like, those two seem like they ha- are a father-son, best friend relationship. He was my flesh and blood son. Wow. I couldn't have been prouder of him. Mm-hmm. I mean... He taught me more things about the music business. He made me, sometimes I would say to him, that's not the traditional way we do things in the music business. He says, I know, but you're going to do it for me, aren't you? And he would, he would make me do things. He, he could make two plus two equal five. He was a visionary. He was, it, it just chokes me up. I think about mm. him every day of my life. Really? This guy, he shouldn't have died, man. And he was just so important. 
And that's why I wrote my book, because I wanted to establish his legacy and maybe reconstitute my own reputation a little. <sighs> Did you go on vacations together? Were you so... You were business partners. He was your flesh and blood son, as you said. But what did you do socially outside of work? Well, we did everything together. Although he did it longer than I did, because when I would go to bed at <laughs> one o'clock, he was just getting he was just getting started. Because right? I had to get up at four to go at the off. Okay. You know, go to the office yeah. at five. But uh, and every night he would come to my house at three thirty. We each had keys to each other's houses. Did you live close by to each other? Two houses away. Two ho and what city was that? Calabasas. You lived two houses away from each other. Yeah. And you each had key. And he would come over at three in the morning. Right. So I would hear. I would leave everything on my desk. Okay. I would leave all the work from the day. I would leave the, the 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 reports. Yeah. I would leave checks for him to sign, and I'd hear him rumbling around. And most of the time, I would go out there and we'd go over the day's business, and uh, he would go on about his business, and I would just be getting up. So, you know, it was an unlikely, incredible relationship where we built an empire, and of all the things that I've done in my life. Elton John, Pink Floyd, Journey, Sticks, Ario Speedwagon, Marvin Gaye, Boss Skaggs, Van Morrison, Joan Armitrading, The Four Tops, The Miracles, all the things that I've done in my life. I've never been prouder of the time from March 3rd of 1987 till March 25th of 1995. Mm. My time with Easy Motherfucking E. I mean, he was just unbelievable. Wow. Let's move on to what the hell you're doing now, Jerry. All these bands you've worked with, what you've done, if you're working with someone, there's got to be something to them. They've got to be good. Tell me about the band you're working with. Are they hip-hop? Are they rock and roll? What are they? Well, they're called 28, the number 28 North. They're from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. They are the finest musicians, the finest vocals, the greatest 250 songs that I've ever heard. They've been on the road for three years now. They've played almost 700 dates, which they booked themselves all east of the Mississippi. And uh, as usual, I was in the right place at the right time. I was in the pool at the Eden Rock on vacation. I had just made a Latino uh, label deal for some <laughs> friends of mine in uh, Miami. Right. Uh, there were some guys there from CAA uh, who were there for a bachelor party, and one of the guys, uh, Chris Dahlstrom, who had given me the ACDC tour for Slash when I was managing him, uh, said, hey, Jerry Heller, and some guy on a raft said, Jerry Heller? He said, my son's in a rock and roll group. you got to listen to him. And I heard this band, and they are unbelievable. They are probably one of the great bands that I've ever heard in my life. They are a little bit of the Allman Brothers. Ooh, okay. There are a lot of the band, Kings of Leon. 28 North is the name of the band, the number 28 and then North. So if you guys are listening to this, take a second after we're done, which is here in a few minutes, find them online, listen to songs. Sorry, Jerry. Go ahead. No. You're, Two, you're, now, 250 you're... songs they have done. What? So for you, what are you telling the band to do next? How are they going to get huge? Well, you know me. I'm the man with a plan, okay? That's right, yeah. So we have a multifaceted... Uh, plan, but in the meantime, we're back to old school, mm -hmm. like the police did. They travel around the country in a school bus. Uh, I have <laughs> them awesome. out here. I have them out here for six weeks now. They headlined the Roxy uh, last week. How was that show? Fantastic, but you know that was the same night that Rage Against the Machine and and Muse played at the Coliseum. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was 
it became anticlimactical, really, for for their show. They are going to headline the Roxy again at the end of the week. Um, We're going to find them. You guys go look for them. 28 North is the band. And uh, on that note, Jer, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thanks. You know, it's been such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. You and I are friends. Yeah. And I just love, I think you're the, probably the most important DJ in America today. You got great ears. You're a great DJ. Uh, you're a great television personality. And I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. You're my man. I, Thank I you, just, Jerry. I just love you, man. Thank you. I love you, too. And this was such a pleasure to sit down and hear these stories. And as I said, like 20 minutes ago, I, I mean, I could hear this. I think we could go for a few hours. Thank you for coming into my little studio and doing this. What do you do? Let, should we go eat now? Can we go have dinner together? Let's go to Craig's, man. All right. We're going to Craig's right now. I'm going to dinner with Jerry Heller right now, the Super Dope manager. My good pal, Jerry Heller. You guys, thank you very much for listening. Get Jerry Heller's book called Ruthless. It's an amazing read. And I am Stryker saying... Happy snuggles. Bye-bye. That's another episode of Strikers Tuna on Toast. Promise it'll get better. Most likely. For sure. <laughs> Maybe. How about that? That was a wild ride. Thanks for making it uh, to the end. Thanks for checking out Tuna on Toast. There are so many great episodes available if you are new to the podcast. And I am easy to find. Ted Stryker, Instagram, Tuna on Toast everywhere. Uh, Tuna on Toast is a YouTube show as well. Please spread the word. Uh, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Simply download, listen, catch up on the old episodes. Again, thanks so much for the support. Uh, have a great rest of your day and night. Not sure if I said it yet. Happy snuggles. Bye-bye.